welcome to Faith in Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. Danielle Mayfield, who writes under her initials D.L. Mayfield, is an acquaintance of mine from here in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. We've interacted a handful of times, and I know her through, met her originally through a mutual friend. But I'm most familiar with her uh, having just read her work over the years. And so when I asked her to come on the show, I did so um, being mindful of the fact that not only was she about, at the time of recording, to release a new book, which we did spend most of our time discussing, um, but also just in light of the kind of the overall body of work that she's done and which I've admired over the last decade or so. So Danielle got her start, which she talks about towards the end of our interview, about a decade ago. Um, in many ways, you can you can see specifically where she got it. There's a real line in the sand in terms of when she started writing seriously. She submitted to a contest that Dave Eggers' website, McSweeney's, was having and ended up winning uh, a one-year column, a weekly column on their website, which she ended up using to write about her experiences as a domestic missionary living amongst Muslim Somali immigrants. And from there, she's gone on to write for a wide range of publications, including Christianity Today, where she had a cover story a few years ago that was very powerful about the legacy of lynching and the American church, and even specifically, more specifically in Oregon, um, as well as a lot of writing about the the overarching concept of what she has sometimes referred to as downward mobility. Kind of the intersection of the gospel message and the call of Jesus to love the poor and the American late capitalist mindset, acquisition, wealth, the intersection of class, privilege, things like this are all in her wheelhouse. She also has been writing more about race in recent years. And certainly uh, we talk about her idea of uh, the discipline of lament. So there's a lot here. Her new book is called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. Uh, just a quick note, the this was actually the first recording that I ever did with somebody where we enabled the video function uh, on Skype. So I realized in listening back to the interview, both because of uh, some small editing tweaks I made at some of the kind of the transitions between when she'll stop talking and when I start talking, and just by virtue of what was happening interpersonally, that it sounds like I'm not really engaging with her. And she'd have to be the judge as to how you know, how the conversation went, but I found her to be very, very open and gracious. And there are times when she is laughing and, uh, it's, I think in listening back, it kind of sounds like I just immediately go into my next question as if I'm not even kind of on the same page or acknowledging that I, in my memory, we had a great conversation. And I think part of what was happening is that there's stuff you just can't hear obviously, but which, you know, we were essentially communicating because we were looking at each other. So I would have been nodding and smiling, um, uh, which is not to say that there weren't certain things I pressed her on in this conversation, which, again, you'll hear about. But uh, really grateful to Danielle for doing this. I found her to be so open. Um, and, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing how other people receive this book and uh, reading her work for years to come. Here's Danielle Mayfield. Danielle Mayfield, thanks for coming on the show. 
I'm happy to be here. You have just published, or are about to publish at the time of recording, a new book titled The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. In your own words, what is this book about? Well, it's kind of just what's been rumbling around my brain for the past, you know, four or five years, and I decided to write it down in a series of essays. But, you know, I think it's just a continuation of my writing journey, which has been just wrestling kind of with my very specific location and upbringing, which is in, you know, evangelical American white Christianity and all that comes with that and really wrestling with, you know, some of that legacy. And um, yeah, I think the fundamental question I'm trying to ask is, uh, you know, is my, is my country really good news for everybody? Right. And uh, is my religion good news for anybody that's not just like me those are two questions that I've been forced to ask myself for you know a while now and yeah I think this is this is what is coming out of it I've the experience of reading the book was really interesting to me and in some ways relatively unique in terms of at least this kind of book and I want to I want to try to unpack that with you a little bit so there's there's like a thematic overarching element, which even just from the title of the book, you can you can begin to get. You kind of break down what you describe as as American empire into these four components that you're offering, um, you know, a reflection on or a critique of affluence or wealth, autonomy, safety, and power. And there's also a very uh, confessional component. There's like a, a you know, it's it is to some extent you know, certainly a memoir, and you're talking openly throughout the book about your own psyche, your own emotions, your own upbringing. Let's start with the critique of empire, uh, which I resonated deeply with. Uh, and I, you know, we don't have to necessarily get super into the weeds on all four of these. We can, but take us a little bit through these components uh, of, of the American empire as you describe it, starting with affluence and maybe I'll sort of animate the the conversation here with a question is af is wealth inherently bad that seems to be one of the questions that you're you're ambivalent about or interrogating you say at one point being financially safe and secure isn't a major theme of scripture but unjust economic practices are so is wealth inherently bad and what is the christian's responsibility within the american late capitalist system yeah, I, I think one of the challenges for writing this book is there's so much going on. So I'm someone who comes squarely from the dominant culture, right, of the United States. And for us, it's really hard to conceive, especially if you grew up like me, very individualistic focus. It's really hard to conceive of like the systems that we swim in and how they shape our lives. And so for me, I think starting my book with talking about this value of affluence was really important because I was able to sort of say, Hey, we're not going to just talk about like, is it wrong for you to buy a latte, <laughs> you know, uh, and this like individual morality around wealth. And instead let's look at some systems that are inherently unjust and have created pathways for some, a very few people to pursue wealth into a mass wealth. But while a lot of people have been, you know, shut out of these pathways. And so how do we really engage in these systematic frameworks? And for me, these values of affluence, autonomy, safety, and power, they kind of sound random, 
but in the book, it, I it, I kind of lay out how those values kind of came about for me playing with scriptures. And in particular, these passages where Jesus is talking about what the values of the kingdom of God are and the values that Jesus said, this is where I'm going to be working. So I'm, I'm talking specifically about Luke 4, where Jesus announces his ministry in the temple by reading Isaiah 58. So he's drawing on this rich Old Testament tradition of saying, you know, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captives, restore sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And so looking at what Jesus is saying is like, you know, he came to be with the poor, with those who have been imprisoned, with people who are blind, and with people who have been oppressed. And I just was like thinking about it. I'm like, okay, well, what are the opposite of those places? You know, the rich and the free and the safe and the well and uh, people who have power, oppressors. And so just really thinking about those values and saying, you know, I think they, these values have really, really shaped my life more than I am comfortable admitting. So you're right. I think it was really important for me to frame this book as part confessional memoir because I am on this journey of interrogating where I'm at, both in the story of scripture in my community today, right, in America today, which, you know, as we're chatting, we're in the midst of this global pandemic, which, oh boy, is really uh, highlighting, right, some of these values. And um, even when it comes to affluence, like, it's, it's becoming so clear how so many people in our country have been hanging on by a thread, right, how close to the edge so many people have been. And now, I mean, what are the unemployment rates up to at this point? I don't even know. But uh, we're entering a new dawn where, all, where some of these values are really going to be kind of revealed right, to be as, as damaging as they actually are. You just equated power and oppression directly, which I think is one, one of the things that I was struck by. And this is just sort of one angle of it. But you said those with power are the oppressors. You, you could, I suppose, interpret that or take that different ways. Is, is power, which is your, you know, that's another one of the explicit four topics you're commenting on here, but it's certainly bound up with affluence, which we started talking about. I asked you, is, is wealth inherently bad? Is power inherently bad? Is, it, is, is in your view, is to have wealth or to have power, and is that inherently corrupting? Yeah, I, I, it's so funny that you're asking these questions because I am not going to answer them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think one thing that might frustrate people about this book is um, it has a very intense title and I um, like to think about very intense things, but I don't, I'm not really in, interested in answering those questions straight up. In fact, you know, essays really come from this format of wanting to just try to explore some possibilities and it's almost like a more of a meandering and here's all these different things that kind of coalesce and we can pull from these different things. And so I'm really interested uh, instead of, you know, saying is all power wrong is all wealth bad. I'm interested in saying like, can we be curious about how idolizing power has shaped us, right? Can we be curious about how affluence leads to amnesia, right? That's what theologian 
Walter Brueggemann says, it leads us to forget those who are in need in our midst. And there's so many different ways we can take that. We can look at that spiritually through the scriptures of the Old Testament. We can just look at what upward mobility does. In the United States, it creates segregated communities, segregated neighborhoods by trying to get the best house in the best neighborhood in the best school district. It concentrates poverty in certain areas. It concentrates affluence in certain areas. You know what I mean? So let's get curious about how our world is orchestrated, um, both in a systematic perspective, but also these values, how, how they shape us. And so for power, you know, I was really raised to say, if you're a Christian, you know, you are ordained by God to be in power and you will be the best person to be in power because of your Christian values. And what's fascinating is to see, you know, for many people, 2016 and the election of Donald Trump was like a real wake up call, right? So instead of being like, we're, we're specifically supposed to be in power because we have God on our side, it kind of turned into this, let's get power at any and all costs, you know, and let's kind of throw some of that morality stuff out the window. And so I think we have to say what kind of shifted the conversation there. And I think it's because we have been trained to idolize power, you know, more than most other things. I don't know. What, what do you think coming from kind of a similar background, I think? Oh man, there's so much, there's so much to say, and I don't want to go down the political rabbit hole too much, but I think the idea of inviting curiosity is is very potent and powerful, and I felt a deep resonance with what I took to be your overarching theme throughout all four of these kind of sub-topics, which is that, um, you know, the, the American empire, the, and yes, you're right, I grew up in a a middle-class white <clears throat> evangelical context as well that 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 world has or and in some cases is built upon things that are just if not straight up antithetical to the gospel then deeply problematic to it and and you know maybe this is a good juncture at which to interleave even even already to begin to, to weave in this secondary level on which I read your book or experienced it as a reader um, and I, I, let me actually open that, open that discussion by asking you who you wrote this book for. Who did you write this book for? Um, you know, a part of me wonders if a lot of my writing is, you know, to make sense of what's going on in my head. So that's where I have started with everything is I am writing to come to some kind of awareness of what's really going on. So I think my writing comes out of that same thing I was just talking about. I'm trying to be curious what's going on, what's going on in my life. And a part of my story, again, you know, coming from this evangelical world, you know, I went to school to be a missionary and to change the world and to convert people to be just like me. And instead, I ended up, uh, you know, meeting refugees, moving into apartment complexes with them. Then I became an English teacher. My whole life is now kind of been lived with immigrant refugee populations in very poor neighborhoods. And instead of like being the person to bring God into those spaces and to fix everything and to make people just like me, um, instead, I just started to experience God in these spaces. And I did not bring God with me, right? I experienced the love of God in these spaces. Um, and it was very lonely because I had no framework to communicate that right back to my community even. Um, of how I was experiencing God in the world and where I was seeing God move and um, how I was just this tiny little part of it. And uh, 
yeah, I had no framework for that in this model of American evangelical exceptionalism and triumphalism and me being the missionary. So I think I started writing just to be like, does anybody else feel this way? Am I the only one? And then not just writing, but also reading a wider swath of um, Christians and theologians and activists, um, people who are really obsessed with this idea of the common good. And I think that's really what this book is about. It's about me growing up with an insufficient framework for the common good, right? So how these values, affluence, autonomy, safety, and power, um, are so centered on either you as an individual or your nuclear family, or even maybe your, your small religious community. And it doesn't extend to our neighbors. I would say even in our own city, not much less globally, right? So a lot of my writing is probably done just for me. Um, it might also be a little bit for my dad. Um, <laughs> and it, and it probably is, uh, you know, I made a choice to publish this book with a evangelical publisher, you know, so writing for my community and just wanting to say, is anybody else on this journey of disconnect with me and feeling this sense of we were raised to read the Bible, we were raised um, to honor Jesus. And now what do we do with the fact that we were not given any framework to live for the common good? What do we do with that? Yeah. Another way of asking the question of who you wrote the book for is what is your hope for the book? Or that's maybe a related question. So either in, in the the process of conceiving of and drafting and writing the book or, you know, now as it's entering the world, I actually read um, in, a, in an interview recently a great question that someone posed to another um, woman who's a theologian. They were asking her about one of her books did you write your book to inform and educate readers to encourage them or to piss them off? I want to ask you that same question. Like what, what is your hope for what someone other than you or your father? And maybe that, maybe there is, maybe there isn't one and maybe that's good enough that you wrote it for yourself and, or maybe for your dad. But to the extent that the existence of a book that has been published and sent out into the world and offered to people to buy and then read invites engagement from strangers. What is your hope for someone who reads this book? Are they going to be informed and educated? Are they going to be encouraged? Are they going to be angered? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of hope all of that, but when I, when I was writing it, um, I wrote down these two words that were really important to me because again, you, you don't want to just publish like, this whole long word vomit of your inner life. You need to have a bigger framework than that. And I can definitely get into the place of despair or being preachy or being judgmental or being saccharine and hopeful when I haven't earned that. Right. You know what I mean? Like we all contain multitudes. Right. So when I was writing the book, I, these two words just coming, kept coming to me and they were connect and unsettle. And I don't view those as being contradictory at all, actually. Um, but those are two things I need to keep in the back of my mind. If I'm only there to unsettle and poke and make people feel agitated and pissed off or like deeply upset or whatever, you know, that's only one part of the equation because I truly am interested in connecting. Like that's what my actual life and my actual neighborhood's about. And so therefore my writing also needs to have these pathways of connecting with people. Um, and I don't know if 
I pulled that off, but I, I just I just had to look at those words from time to time to say, like, am I intentionally distancing myself? Am I intentionally, you know, not creating a way for me to be vulnerable? Um, but I'm not an expert, and I hope I make that really clear. Um, and I hope I'm able to point to a lot of other people that uh, people could be reading if they're looking for some expert opinions on some of these topics. I'm just somebody who's trying to pay attention and ask questions. You clearly just in talking with you and, and certainly in reading the book, have a level of self-awareness about your own ambivalence and your own, you're conflicted. And it comes through in the book about any number of things, frankly. But as the reader, this was a difficult book to read. And I think there's two reasons why. I think it's, it's difficult to read a book well, for me personally, it was difficult. It is always difficult to be confronted by and reminded of my own privilege, my own apathy, my own failures, my own participation in a system that is, uh, you know, corrupt and unjust in many ways. And it was also a book that was shot through with a really healthy dose of frustration and disappointment verging at times on scorn. I felt at times confronted, but not really directly. I was confused as to whether you were primarily just like disappointed in yourself or who, who you were really talking to sometimes or where you were directing your, your negativity. <laughs> so, we're, you know, at one point, I'm going to read a quote. You say, talking about affluence, this is towards the beginning of the book in the first section, talking about affluence brings up shame for some people, but shame is unhelpful. I should know because I experience quite a bit of it. And no matter how much I wallow in shame, it doesn't actually make the world a better place for my neighbors. And then probably not too long after that, and probably the, the most telling or just sort of evocative anecdote that you tell in the, in the book, the one that really stuck with me, you, you relate this story about being at a writing workshop having a woman come up to you, I think, I think the woman maybe who was running the workshop and she pulls you aside at one point and she asks you this question, essentially what, I think she said, what would it be like for you to wake up happy some mornings? And you, you, uh, <laughs> you, which, you know, indicates that she got the impression that you often or always wake up sad and you end that anecdote by saying that you wish that you, that she would wake up sad herself, which I, which I read as a kind of attempt to preempt the crit, you know, criticism essentially. And as if your critical stance towards yourself in the world are a kind of, of right or that they're good or that they, that they shouldn't be pushed back on too hard. It, what do you think about that? Is that fair? Um, do you think that you're, do you, do you perceive yourself to be particularly sensitive to that critique of being, you know, quote unquote, too sad yeah, I think this like one of the reasons I wrote about that is because it is absolutely a concurring, ever-present tension in my life. Right? Is this reality that there is nothing more annoying than someone who was like a white privileged lady just like bemoaning her privilege and feeling crappy about herself? You know what I mean? That is so annoying. And um, I can be in that space sometimes. Uh, but I think it's really important to say, uh, I used to wake up really happy. I used to wake up 
sure that I knew everything about God and everything about my country. And I, I used to be very full of self-assurance. And I would not want to go back to that place for anything because I didn't have real relationships. I, you, you know what I mean? Like I, in my mind, thought I was better than so many other people. I was not curious about the world. I had not been invited into other people's suffering. And so I think for me, what I was trying to say in, in some of these stories is the trade-off of paying attention can be steep sometimes. And I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to say that we won't actually have to lose some things, which a part of it for me has even been a little bit of my mental health. And that's not just because of like living in poor neighborhoods and all that, but just life, you know, the older you get, the more you have these life experiences and it it all can really add up. And so, um, saying maybe this is not as, as good as I, as I thought it would be. I think I was really, um, you know, what's the, what's the, this in that, this, you mean your, your current life of of where you've attempted to move towards that it has also in some way been had its own sense in which you've been unfulfilled or did you, cause you pivoted there. I wasn't sure if you were talking about your sort of your previous yeah, I think I'm, life. I think, yeah, I think a part of it is really also there's this other like um, gender component to being a Christian woman writer. You are supposed to be pretty happy <laughs> and tie things pretty neatly with a bow. And so there may be a reason why I am very into talking about lament and being honest is because that is things that are not um, privileged in uh, book sales. <laughs> Those are things that don't tend to get talked about at conferences. Um when you come from, again, like a white dominant culture background. So as I talk about being honest about being sad, really what I'm trying to do is reclaim this ancient Christian tradition of lament. And I don't think I do it well, but I think I'm on a journey of reclaiming that as just a vital part of a faith journey is to just be whiny sometimes to God and to be like, the reason I'm mad is because the world sucks. It just does. And maybe it doesn't even suck for me, but it sucks for people I really love. And I trust that, God, you're listening to me. So I'm just going to go ahead and say how much this sucks. Um, And being like, wow, that's like a huge part of scripture. And uh, not that I'm equating myself with them, but, you know, we didn't sing those kind of songs in in my church growing up. And so I've had to kind of learn how to sing them on my own. And I think my writing is just a part of that. And honestly, I love, I love writing that invites people into some of these more ambivalent spaces, right? I love to read essayists where, you know, the writer is a little bit unreliable because they're an actual human being (laughs) instead of somebody who has to posture themselves like an expert in order to sell things to me. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. That's That's a very, that's an honest response to my question. I, you know, my, my experience was that reading the book was on some level exhausting. And it was, I think that's just an extension of what I was saying before, where it's on the one hand, it's like, it's hard to be, it's hard to meditate on these, on these things, on the brokenness and the cruelty of the world and the way that I'm, how do I extricate myself from that? Am am I, am I doing anything? And then it was also just, I felt like on some level, and again, this kind of gets into that, that preempting that I experienced almost of 
a kind of a defensiveness that time at times creeps into the writing where I felt like I was just bearing witness to your own disappointment with the world. And so I'm a big believer in the general idea that a writer doesn't owe the reader anything, but I wasn't sure if there was an invitation to me in the book or if it was just a form of self-expression, which is fine, but was it was a, it was a difficult one. It was a difficult read on, on that level. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I'm just going to be really curious as to what sticks out to people and what doesn't, because I think I think everybody's going to have some different parts, right, that stick out to them. But I will say I would view those parts where I'm being honest about my inner world and specifically my disappointment and anger. I would view those as my little um, flares, sending out flares into the sky, and I'm looking for people who feel the same way. And I, I understand that not everybody does and that, you know. It's, it's probably kind of off-putting, but uh, there's a few others out there, and I think I'm trying to find them. When I think about, or when I hear you talk about this, the idea of sending out flares, it makes me think about the idea of kindred spirits and how much comfort and life there can be in simply sort of, you know, finding your tribe or finding finding people who you feel safe with, finding people who want to take action in the way that you want to take action, however you want to fill in fill in the blank there but people you know people where you are understood and it also seems somehow related to the to the question of the the thin line between righteousness and self-righteousness between having considered an issue and then and taking a position on it and being unapologetic about that and then what we would think of as self-righteousness so I, i yeah when you talk about sending out flares it makes me think about I guess, yeah, I go back to the to the question of the extent to which you're trying to um, convince people of of a position or awaken them to it, or if you're really just trying to. I mean, when you say you're sending out flares, are you you're hoping that people will read this and get in touch with you, and you can and you can have connection with them? Well, I mean, not everybody, because right, <laughs> we can't we can't really. Uh... I think there's a point in the book where I, where I talk about like how I want to be friends with all my neighbors. I want to move into every low income apartment complex, like in the world. And my husband, who's this amazing therapist is like, you can only really be friends with a few people. So you got to pick those people on purpose. So when, when I say flares, you know, I, I think about this article that Michael Shaban, is that how you say his last name? Shaban. Shaban. He wrote for some magazine, and it, it was about his son, who was really into fashion. And go back and read, like, the last few paragraphs of that piece, because they have always stuck with me. Because, you know, they've really never understood why their son was so into fashion, why he dressed the way he did it, not like anybody else. And when he gets to Paris Fashion Week, you know, he's like, he's found his home, and he's found his people. And then he ends up telling his dad, like, the reason I wear these clothes is because I'm sending up flares. I'm trying to find other people people and um I just thought that's what I've been doing like that's what I've been doing with my writing this whole time because um you know I I can't sometimes get (laughs) my life would be a lot easier if I would just calm down about a lot of things and if I would just tone it down and I try I do try sometimes um and even you know choosing the publisher I did choosing the editor I did who who comes from a very conservative background and was able to pull me back in certain ways you know I, I recognize that I have a very singular approach to the world and the way I view it. 
Um, but in some ways, it's just so nice to let that little freak flag fly and see who comes and see who resonates with that and have these discussions that I'm just like truly bursting to have with other people. And so, um, yeah, I think sometimes I can be like, sure, this is an accessible book for everybody, but I don't, you know, that's not true. <laughs> it's, but it is as honest of a book as I could write while still, you know, having to really be thoughtful about are there ways I can invite people into this? And, you know, that would be my ultimate hope. But some of the stuff in there is definitely just some wild fashion Nista flair, flair throwing, <laughs> as you probably noticed. Yes. Yes, I noticed some of that. Tell me more about the idea of lament. Uh, you have a you have a you have a few Brueggemann quotes in the book, and one of them is you you reference him as uh, or a description he gives of poets as those who have no advice to give to people, which seems directly related to what we're talking about. So not not being maybe burdened with a, a sense of obligation to give people explicit advice or tell them exactly what to do, but to engage in some combination of provocation and bearing witness. And that, that idea of bearing witness or the idea of having a tragic imagination is seems bound up with this, this concept. So maybe you've already covered it as much as you can or want to, but what, what is the discipline of lament? Yeah, I, um, I, you just said tragic imagination, which is amazing because I think that's a, I think that's a term that I, in my memory, was introduced to through um, Tanahasi Coates. Oh, because I love that. I, I mean, Walter Brueggemann talks about the prophetic imagination. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, lament is tied up into that, and also, you know, we haven't really discussed this overarching theme of empire, but you know, just the dominant way of thinking. We can go back to that. The dominant culture of thinking, and you know, how does empire work? It just tries to convince you that only empire can take care of you, right? That any other way of thinking or living or doing is just not going to work and it's not going to be okay. And empire is going to last forever anyway. So why not just join in and um, do as best as you can, right? In this predatory economy that thrives off the exploitation of others and where you can never, ever, ever have enough, right? That's, that's empire. So the prophetic imagination really does start with lament and lament truly is just people uh, being honest about the state of the world and just being incredibly honest about how bad things are. That's how it starts. And then it's an expression of faith that someone is ultimately listening. There is a God who is listening to what you have to say. And then most laments in scripture do end with like, you know, eventually moving into, and now we'll remember the times in the past when God did, take care of us and God did intervene. And so we can have some hope perhaps for the future. God will intervene, but not all of them. And like that, some of them just end with things suck the end. I hope you're listening, God. Um, and that actually is a way of con like actually connecting our faith, right. To the reality of the world. And do we actually have a belief in a good and loving God, right. Or are we just sort of pagans who, <laughs> If our prayers are answered, you know, then either we messed up or God hates us or there is no God. Um, and then I was talking to somebody about this the other day. The other the other element of lament is that once we articulate how bad things are, we are then forced to say, am I going to be a part of making this right or not? 
And I think maybe that's the part that we all are going to struggle with, right? Even in this book, there's this sense of like, well, what do we do? (laughs) What do we do now? Like, if it's all really so bad, like, what are we, what are we supposed to do? And I I don't have the answers, but I, I hope we all start asking that question and that we don't stop and we don't actually think we're going to get to a point anytime soon where we can stop asking that question. It doesn't have to be this huge burden thing. And instead it can be this exciting place of reclaiming this idea of mutuality, right? And how truly our flourishing is bound up with everybody's. And the sooner we can be honest about that, the sooner we can say, are we supposed to be a part of seeing other people flourish and not just ourselves? So, you know, I, hopefully the older I get, you know, we all want to be less self-righteous and we want to be less judgmental. And I hope I can move forward into this place where it's just about saying, this is what I'm seeing. And I want to be curious about that. I think I, I, I quote another person in the book who says, you know, the word prophet, one of the Hebrew words for prophet, it just means to bubble up. Um, things just bubble up to the surface. Um, can I be a part of saying, this is what I'm seeing bubbling up in my neighborhood? Yeah. That is, that seems way better for a healthier life than being caught in this trap of inescapable agony of, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm not saying that doesn't exist in my heart because it does. So We've talked a little bit about your upbringing, but it's been very general, and you referenced your father. I, I do want to take a little time here as we as we look towards the end of our interview and ask you a little bit more about that, um, because I do remember that quote and um, that idea of, of things bubbling up is, makes me think of my own background in, in psychology and, and the idea of, of kind of where whatever bubbles up out of us comes from it it has to you know there's things that have gone into the hopper the things that have formed us the experiences we've had that's where the unconscious you know the unconscious is where things bubble out of so this this theme of ambivalence as we've already talked about is is strong and you talk one of the ways you talk about it in the book is you you repeatedly talk about how you have this desire or this impulse to want to justify yourself before God or to be able to sort of present to God your actions or what you have, what you've done, how you've loved others. I think there's a beautiful way of thinking about that and um, something that dovetails with the actual call to lived love, you know, faith without deeds is dead. That's a theme in, in the New Testament. But there was, by the, by the end of the book, I had this, I had this desire to, to be like, okay, I've, I've acknowledged that. But take me like another step down. But, like, you know, where does that suspicion about your own motives come from? What is that about to the extent that you're aware of that? Yeah, I think it just comes from, um, you, you, you know, my I wrote my first book, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. That kind of delves with that question more, right? Uh, delving into this idea of um, savior complexes and what it means when you think it's your job to save the world. <laughs> you know, what do you think it means when you think you have a special dispensation from God <laughs> to <laughs> change the world? And uh, yeah, I think there's some really toxic spiritual fruits that come out of that way of thinking. Um, but it's, definitely something that is not going to be erased in my life overnight. And 
especially since I've been a part of a community that has only encouraged me in these pursuits and these ways of viewing the world and myself in the world. Um, you know, a little, a little same thing with publishing. It's, it's not like, uh, people are clamoring for you to, um, think ethically about what you write or how you present yourself. It's not like there's people all over the place saying like, Hey, you know what? Maybe, uh, you should, quote other people instead of thinking that you yourself has something new to say here. You know, you know, it's like the world is not set up for that. If you're someone like me who comes from the dominant culture, they're just like, go for it, do it, do it, you know? And so I really become terrified <laughs> about that and uh, seeing who gets celebrated and who gets elevated. Um, and I really had this sense of nobody is going to do this work, but me. I alone am responsible for saying, like, when I write, you know, am I treating my neighbor as well? Am I portraying them in a positive way that is realistic, that won't exploit them? You know, you know what I mean? Nobody else is going to ask me these questions. So I've really had this burden of saying, I have to do this on my own. And now I think things are are changing a little bit just with social media. There is access to so many a variety of perspectives. It's easier to get feedback and um, even really negative feedback, right? <laughs> about being a white woman writing about immigrant community. You know, I've gotten some really intense feedback, but but viewing it as a gift because that actually should have been happening for so long for so many different people. You know, up until this point. But yeah, I think I've 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 been a little terrified just being in publishing a bit and saying like, oh my gosh, nobody's gonna ask me hard ethical questions. I, I gotta, gotta I kind of got to do it on my own. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and seems wise and self-aware. I do feel like my question go, is, is geared at something that goes deeper than that though, because the, that suspicion of your own motives that is a, is a thread that you tug on throughout the book se seems to really predate your life in, in publishing and writing. What, how did your family of origin and the, and the context in which you grew up affect affect this aspect of your your personality? Yeah, I I truly don't think it was a part of my personality until I started writing, and I started writing when I had my first child, who is going to be turning ten in August, and up until that point, you know, I was just full bore into this life of being a busybody missionary do-gooder. You know, I lived in this low-income apartment complex with refugees. I was running like after school camps. I was doing English classes. We were doing art classes. Like I was working two jobs. I was, you know, super pregnant and all this stuff. And then I had my child two months early because I got super sick and I almost died. And then the doctor was like, you can't take your baby anywhere. She's four pounds. You need to stay at home for like six months to a year and you can't do anything. And so my life just stopped completely in all these ways I'd used to feel good about myself. Um, and I never once second guessed that I was doing the right thing because, of course, I was. I was helping people, you know, and I had to just sit at home with my baby and think my thoughts for once and just sit with them. And that's when I started writing. That's when I started writing for McSweeney's it was the first thing I ever did was I had this column, um, which, you know, looking back, oh, my gosh, I would do so many things differently. But uh you know, kind of juxtapositioning my own upbringing in a sort of fundamentalist Christian context with then living in community with um, Muslim Somali refugees. And so 
I, I truly did not second guess myself or even start to think through why am I doing the things I do and all this until that moment. And so maybe that's why my writing focuses so much on that inner tension and struggle is because um, that's how it started for me. And that is how I continue to view my writing to this day. Um, but no, I was not like that before. And I, you know, I've developed an anxiety disorder in the past 10 years as well. So that's probably <laughs> some of it as well. All that stuff that comes with life, you know, I want to talk about your, your idea of God's stance towards the world, which you, again, you reference several times throughout the book and which seems deeply formative to a lot of the questions that we're discussing here. I'm going to give you two quotes that, that you have in the book. One is, in my mind, Jesus usually appears sober and disappointed with the world, just like I am. Another quote is, if God is love, then God is obsessed with all these sad stories, too. Where did you get that idea of God's stance towards the world as sober, disappointed, and obsessed with sad stories? Yeah, well, well, the part about Jesus that I was talking about, you know, I do think I sometimes have this stern Jesus who, you know, was thrown over tables in the temple and always getting into enormous fights with religious leaders. Um, but, you know, right after I say that, I talk about how Jesus had this reputation for being um, a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> Right? There's actually a verse in scripture that's like, he's always partying with people and he's always eating too much and drinking too much. And and thinking about, you know, what was the economic context of when Jesus was walking around? And people lived in this subsistence economy. They, they often did not know where their next meal was going to come from. And that was the vast majority of people did not know if they were going to eat a meal the next day. And Jesus is like walking around feasting. And possibly drinking too much. Like, it just blew my mind. And so I, I was really confronted with this idea of, like, Jesus is somebody who obviously experienced joy and celebrated life and, and did all these things that don't fit my perception of him. And so that's more peak, right, into me and what's going on with me is how I have created Jesus in my own min image, right? And I'm, I'm in a bad place. I think it's <laughs> apparent when I'm writing that. And, you know, same thing with God. I think if you come from some sort of background where even though people don't want to say it, you know, you really do start to believe some prosperity gospel stuff, right? Like if you just do the right thing, if you live your life well, you know, you will have a great marriage. Your kids will never get sick. Like you'll be able to pay off your debts. You'll get a good job, you know. I think deep down, we're just like, yes, if we try as hard as we can and we pray a lot and go to church, then, then things will be okay. But, you know, that is just not true. And so when our facades start to crumble, you know, we have a few options, right? We can either think it's because of us or it's because of God. And going back to scriptures, I think I just, I just started to see how there's people from all different walks of life in all different horrible circumstances. And they all just believe that God was right with them, right? And they, that's kind of like the main point of so many of these stories. Not even that God fixed things, um, but that God was there. You know, the first person in the Old Testament to give God a name was Hagar. And she was this slave woman 
um, who was terribly abused by this supposed amazing patriarch, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. And, and Hagar, you know, is in so much suffering. Her life is so horrible. She's been so abused by these people of God. And she ends up naming God the one who sees. And that is so powerful to me because I am friends, right, with women who have experienced forced migration, who have had all these horrible things with them. And they are still um, trying to honor and follow God as best as they can. And they still think that God's eye is on them. And, and their faith really has been so helpful for me. You know, I think you can tell in the book when, when bad things happen or I see an injustice in the world, I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And it just like totally knocks me off my butt for a really long time. But being in relationship with people who have experienced so much hardship and yet still retain a faith and a God who is present, you know, that's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for myself. Do I want, I think I even write in the book, like, do I want my kids to wake up sad every day, you know, about the realities of the world? Um, no, that fundamentally, I want them to wake up in the morning knowing that they are loved by a God who is present. And I think what will come out of that is a mutual like engagement with the realities of the world. And so I think um, it will lead to a, the flourishing of our entire community. But one of the people I, I do talk about, which seems a little cliche is Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, because he really has that balance down perfectly. Right. He knew what he was doing when he started Mr. Rogers neighborhood. He was trying to get in front of the eyeballs of little children who were belittled every day of their lives and made to feel small and alone and insignificant. And he wanted to get right in their faces and say, like, you are loved just as you are. And he and he knew that if kids grew up believing that, our neighborhoods would be completely changed. And so I want to move more in the direction of Mr. Rogers, you know, more so than, like, the prophet Jeremiah and, and his, like, really terrible life he had. <laughs> Part of what I found myself thinking about in light of that, of the questions I was asking you about what comes across to me, at least in your depictions of, of Jesus and God and their stance towards the world is, is what I've come to believe over time is just the, the difficulty for human beings of trying to grapple with the very, very at the very least uncommon and I think generally just sort of impossible non-human aspect of God's nature that we're invited to consider or, or maybe, you know, believe throughout the scriptures and the Christian story, which is the idea that God is capable in a way that we are not of somehow simultaneously being what for a human being is in pretty diametrically opposed I guess for a human what we would call cognitive or emotional states at the same time so as we're trying to wrestle with like okay well but is you know yeah does God really love me is Jesus kind of just pissed off and disappointed with me all the time this I to, to consider this idea that somehow God is at all times completely you know enraptured with his creation and full of joy and love toward his creation and heartbroken uh, and enraged about injustice that there's a preferential option for the poor it's just as human beings we don't we can't really do that we can't simul maybe the closest i can think of being is 
is is grasping the extent to which I can be really upset with my own child and still completely love him. But beyond that, the idea of somehow being very, very, you know, deeply joyful and utterly heartbroken at the same time, that's just not something that as a human being I really have a context for, which makes it which makes it hard. You know, is God schizophrenic? Is God erratic? Was Jesus just all over the place? Did he, did he really love people? Was he really pissed off with people? It's a, I think it's a hard, I think to be generous towards us as human beings, that, that is a hard thing to, to grapple with and to have an understanding of because it's difficult for us as people. Yeah. I, but I think that's like what good poetry does, right? I think that's what good writing invites us into that space of both. There's nothing that frustrates me more, right, than seeing somebody willfully ignore <laughs> the full range of humanity in, in our in our world, right? And that's why, you know, sometimes Christianese or Christian language can be so hard because you're like, yes, that's true, but that's just part of the story. God's in control, you know, faith over fear, whatever we hear people say, you know, I'm like, that's just part of the story. And if you don't tell it all, then that doesn't mean anything and actually can be a burden on people who are maybe experiencing real fear right now because they don't have any income or because um, they're sick. You know what I mean? Like, Yes. Maybe two separate issues. The idea that there's a, a spectrum of reality, that there's good and bad, and that it is, on the other hand, it's just difficult for us to exist. We, we can't experience the full spectrum all of the time at the same time and it, it seems like maybe on some level there's really no way to know this but the, the mystery of the divine or of god is that god has some kind of capacity to do that such that when we when we read the stories about the incarnate jesus we're, we're viewing him through the lens of our own human experience and we're trying to figure out what he must have been feeling or we're inevitably speculating about what his emotional state was like and then it's and then it's confusing because we want to believe that God is. Yeah, that's a separate that's a separate conversation. We don't have to go down the road of the incarnation. But I think that's what I'm getting at more of just this idea, you know, this A.W. Tozer idea of God is simultaneously all of his attributes all of the time. Yeah, I my husband and I, we've really gotten into again, this is probably cliche, but um, the Sufi poet Hafiz, because he, he has such a sense of playfulness and approaching all these different seemingly contradictory elements of God and but it's scary it's scary for a good little evangelical to uh <laughs> play around with with some of this uh different conceptions of God but again you know there's people who wrote the Bible and they were probably pretty mad or pretty happy or pretty, you know depending on the on the day it seems like there's Endless fodder for conversation that we could continue down, but it, you know this may be as good a place as any to land the plane. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me and for being open to my feedback or just my experience of the book. I, uh, I think ultimately this is a book that people will uh, really be able to sink their teeth into. Thank you for writing it and sharing it with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for this conversation, Ben. We obviously spent today's conversation talking about Danielle's newest and latest book. Her first book, which I mentioned in my intro, is titled Assimilate or Go Home. 
Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. Love that title. You can find info on both books and all of her essays on her website, which I've linked to in the show notes. And if you want to get in touch with me, questions, comments, links, friendly repartee can all be directed to ben.j.bishop at gmail.com. Huge mistake? Giving out my personal email address? I don't know. Only time will tell. ben.j.bishop at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next week.